Rolling Dice and Taking Names is sponsored by The Broken Token, creator of high-quality gaming accessories and storage solutions. Visit them online at thebrokentoken.com. If you like legacy games such as Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy, then you're really going to enjoy this episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. The guys interview designer Rob Davio about his new legacy game, Seafall. So grab a moon pie and RC and get ready to set sail. And it's another episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is episode 93, Ship of Fools. I'm Marty. And this is Tony. We are still a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. And Tony, the name of this episode is very appropriate as tonight we will be talking a couple of fools with the designer of Seafall, Rob Davio. I thought it would be appropriate. And then it would also describe when we get this game, the fools that will be playing it. <laughs> That's right. Except now now when we ask people to play it with us, it'll be, oh, so you think I'm a fool. They should feel honored to be included in our group. Wow, the ego. There's a slight bit of one, but then again, it's late for me and I'm a little tired. And if my computer dies one more time, there's going to be a problem. <laughs> You know, to make sure it doesn't die, maybe we should get over to the interview and let's get to the important part and talking with Rob. I think that's a wise decision, sir. Over at the Broken Token, you've heard us talk about their new collector's edition as well as their new box for Splendor. But be sure to check out all their other great inserts that you may have for some of those games on the shelf that, you know what? they need some love or they could probably help you get them off the shelf a lot easier if they just had an insert also be sure to take part in their poll where you can maybe select the next game that they will be producing an insert for once again be sure to go check out all the stuff that the broken token has to offer you at thebrokentoken.com Well, he did not learn his lesson from last time he was on the show, Marty, and he has come back, that great designer, a guy who brought us many, many games of pure passion from Monopoly DVD to the Legacy Series. (laughs) Rob Davio is back on the show. We are so excited to have you back on the show, sir. Yes! <laughs> oh, I raise my I raise my arms over my head and remember I'm a middle aged man who just started working out again. That that was way too painful. <laughs> you were on the perfect show. I'll tell you that right now because we, we're middle aged men and middle. Uh, I can't say that middle aged men and we should be working. Out. Oh, I I did the same thing this weekend. Went to the gym and I this morning I was like, okay, it's either real cold or I'm just old because I'm sore. Oh man, you could I'm do sore. a whole segment called "It Hurts." Why does this hurt? <laughs> What did I do to make this hurt? Like, I don't even know why one shoulder hurts. This didn't used to hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. You're not kidding about that. And we, we are glad that you're on the show with us because now all the old jokes, you understand them. You can, you can appreciate it. <laughs> That's right. You're on the old band show now, yeah. so we can all sympathize with each other. Anyway, but I will say one thing, Rob. I wanted to point out, um, saw a picture on Twitter that you posted. That was some gorgeous steak you had. Gorgeous. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I uh, cooking's my main hobby. I can cook, and I, I I got that steak just perfect. It was a reverse sear for those of you who want the technique. I do. If you want a steak to be medium, medium rare in the middle, you want it to be like 130 degrees, maybe 135, 125. 
So if you just throw that in a pan, the outside is going to get nice and brown and crispy, which is great. But you need to get that middle to get up to 130 degrees. So you'll have that band of like from nice crust to gray to, you know, brown to pink to like what you're looking for in the middle. And it's very hard to do it. That's a regular sear. What I do is I take a steak and I put it in a very low oven, like 250 degrees for about half an hour. Just keep flipping it over. You can put garlic on it. You can put butter on it. You can put herbs. You put some salt and pepper until the steak itself is about 125 degrees. It's basically rare at that point. And it looks a little ghastly because the outside is sort of like a light gray. <laughs> and then while during the last couple minutes, you get a pan blisteringly hot. And then you just do the final sear on the outside. You do a crust. So what happens is you got that nice brown crust on the outside and then it's just pink from wall to wall on the inside because it's been slowly brought up to temperature rather than blistering. What kind of steak was it? That was filet mignon, which I know a lot of steak people will be, I'm sacrificing flavor for tenderness. But my daughter is a teenager and she just started eating red meat. She started eating hamburgers. She's like, wow, this is good. Why haven't I been eating this my whole life? So what I wanted for her first steak was something that didn't have a lot of chew to it. So if she didn't like it, it wasn't going to be chewing on it for like five minutes. If they follow Rolling Dice and Taking Names at all, they've known that we kind of post, well, on Instagram, we post food pictures and somebody posted somebody picking strawberries this weekend on a Twitter account by accident. I don't know how that happened, Marty, but that's okay. We, we enjoy our food. Which one of you criticized my knife skills a couple months ago? Wasn't that one of you? I was cutting shallots. And someone, I thought it was one of the two of you. It was not me for sure. It was not Because I wouldn't me. know what to criticize. Okay. I can't cut anything. I'm still learning how to cut stuff. I thought it was one of the two of you, but I remember I put something up on Twitter. I was making pasta from scratch and I had uh, diced some shallots and had been a little sloppy with them. So I was like, we got to talk about your knife skills, Rob. Those look a little different sizes. And I was like, oh, it's on. The only thing <laughs> that I had fun with you on was uh, when you took a picture from Fenway Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, was that a couple weeks ago, that one? Yep. What, wait, what, what were you doing at Fenway? What do you think he was doing at Fenway? I know he's watching a ball game, but what what, what what game was it? Fill me in here. I don't follow that. It was uh, Tampa Bay versus Boston. I, I grew up in Maine, and I went to college in Boston, and I live in Massachusetts. So all of my sports teams are Boston teams, which is funny because I still think of them all as the lovable losers that everyone like makes fun of, and, I, and that obviously has not been the case for 15 years. So it was an afternoon game, and I was with J.R. Honeycutt, who was my developer on Seafall, and we're working together on another project, the Chronicles project for Artana. And he was in the Boston area, and he's a, he's a big baseball fan. He has season tickets to the Rangers. He had never been to Fenway. And I'm like, look, it's a day game. You're in Boston. This is foolish. Let's go watch a game. So we did. If you got tickets, he's got to go to Fenway. That's just one of the most gorgeous parks. Yeah, he did. His wife was mad because he only likes baseball because when he met her, she she was into baseball and she's never been to Fenway. And instead, he went on a date with me. This is funny. We have spent the first five minutes with Rob discussing food and baseball, <laughs> which which if you hang out with me is pretty much two topics that are going to come up quite a bit. Right. But he's a board game designer. You, He has to have another hobby. And we found it. He's a foodie like us here at Rolling Dice and Taking Names. I, I do not consider myself a foodie. I enjoy food, but I don't know that I'm a foodie per se. Uh, I'm a foodie. I'm a total food snob. No, that's okay. I, I, I appreciate that. I wish I could appreciate food more. I'm a music snob. Mm -hmm. I'm a movie and TV snob. 
the food I haven't gotten there no, yet. That's okay. A friend of ours, uh, he goes by Berkey, Kevin, I always forget, Kevin Berkey. He dresses up like the Sheriff Nottingham when he's at the various conventions. He has a side business called Happy Mouth Seasoning. <laughs> And he, he sends us some um, spices and all. They, if you do any type of grilling or smoking, yeah. you oh man, these, these are Marty and I use them. We put them in our burgers, right, Marty? Uh, yeah, it's a really good seasoning. So, so highly recommend if you could run into him, say, um, Berkey, he'll be in a sheriff's costume. Uh, give me some seasoning, and he'll hook you up. It just he just carries dime bags of seasoning around the conventions. Uh, like the first one's free, he just gives you a little sample, gets you hooked, <laughs> and then some, some, you're meeting him behind the dumpster at Origins. Yes. Yep. That's it. Yeah. He walks around with the, with the raincoat and he opens up his jacket and inside is a bunch of uh, seasoning and you just take one of the packets. That's great. That's, that's it. great. Oh, right here it says free sample right on his, uh, right on the website I found. Okay. Yeah. Well, cause when Marty was on his show, it was funny cause he was getting inundated with a whole bunch of requests cause of the free sample. It's hilarious. But uh, you know what, Marty? I think people probably want us to talk about, oh, I don't know, a board game. Oh yeah. They, they probably tuned out a long time ago. So Seafall. Yes. It is finally coming to fruition. Ooh. The last time we had you on the show, the only thing that you could say was, when it's done, it's done, and I'll tell you when it's yeah. done. Well, now it's done, and it's actually going to be released at, uh, what's, is the street date been announced? It will be, there will be some samples at Gen Con, so we're looking at less than three months now. Um, but those will sort of be uh, early shipments, and then they will hit the shores and start rolling out throughout the U.S. in August into September, and depending on which country you are in, there will be... English versions soon thereafter, and then foreign language versions uh, coming out. Maybe a few by Essen, but then into fourth quarter or first quarter of next year. And I know there's a pre-order going on right now at Plaid Hat uh, Games. Will the pre-orders come out after Gen Con? Pre-orders, I believe you will you will get them after Gen Con, but there's going to be a limited stock at Gen Con. So if you're one of those people who loves to run to the booth and get them, you're going to get it earlier at Gen Con. If you want it delivered to your house with, uh, I'll, I'll plug it a little bit, with metal coins then do the pre-order because the game comes with, um, you know, you get gold and you get ones and fives and tens and it's the uh, traditional cardboard punch board. But what they're doing for the pre-orders on the Plaid Hat site is you pay uh, the normal retail price that you would pay um, at a store, but you'll also get a bag of the coins in uh, metal in addition to the cardboard, so you, which is, and they're also selling them separately for 30. So it's like a $30 value, a bag of coins to go with it. So that's how they're doing the pre Yeah, I think it's like $40 if I remember because it was $39.99 for some. So is you that think what about it. Yeah. Yeah, because I think if you, you know, you're thinking $80 for a game and if I do the discounts, but hey, $40 for metal coins that can later go into your Puerto Rico to make it vintage. Not that I'm saying you do that, but I mean, just the click of metal coins in any game, it adds to that enjoyment. Yeah, if you don't have metal coins, I have a few, um, and you're like, want metal coins for your games, getting the Seafall pre-order is a uh, fantastic way to get uh, the game and metal coins. Plat Hat is, does such a great job of if you pre-order, they give you a little something. For example, if you pre-order their Ashes stuff, there's usually a promo they'll throw in for free, which is nice because it's an extra card. But we're talking forty dollars worth of metal coins. Yeah, if you think if you're for sure going to get this game, I don't know why you wouldn't just go ahead and, and pre-order. And like Tony said, you can use those coins for anything. Yep, yep. There's uh, ones and fives and tens denomination, each with a different. A different color in the cardboard. I think it's going to be a different color metal too. But I, I have, I have not seen the first uh, 
first printings of them yet. Pre-orders going on right now. And I know Plat Hat's one of these. It's like the pre-order kind of stays there until it's gone. I don't know that they have a date when it's coming down, but it usually lasts a while. It will last actually up until or through Gen Con. When they take the pre-orders down is when they know the games are going to be arriving at Plaid Hat headquarters, like within a week or two, because they they put them in boxes, they hand stuff them, put them in boxes and mail them out to everyone. So they kind of close it maybe only a week, a week or two before the games arrive there so that they can make the mailing list and print the label. So it'll be through the middle of August, about three more months. But why wait? Order now. I totally agree. And for those listening, it's like, I keep hearing this Seafall. What exactly are you talking about? So how about giving us a high-level synopsis of what Seafall is all about? Uh, Seafall is my next legacy game. Um, I actually started it before Pandemic Legacy, and then it got delayed because it was, well, it's, it's big and it's sprawling and... Matt Leacock said, do you want to work on Pandemic? And I said, yes. And Seafall took second place then. It is, from the ground up, an original game design. It's the heaviest game I've ever designed. It's mid-weight. It's not too hard, right? And, and the rules are up, too. You can go to the Plaid Hat website, and you can see the starting rules right there. I mean, you take your turn, and you're going to... Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Basically, I wanted to finish summarizing it. Each Each player plays the leader of a province, these sort of fragments of a long-fallen empire, and it takes place in the Age of Sail, so think 16th century, 17th century European colonization, but it's in its own world. And the shorthand I like to say is it's Indiana Jones in the Age of Sail. So it's got this mysterious story, and your ships are out on the sea, and you're exploring islands, and it has a, a chapter book like Tales of the Arabian Night. It's got 430 entries in it that you will you will not encounter all of them because depending on what choices you make when you're exploring and if you do if you look into every uh, corner of the world you'll get uh, everyone will get slightly different stories as they go and the idea is you're you've got this open ocean with just a few islands and you will try to gain glory for your province because if you have the most glory when the island at the end of the world is discovered, you will become the emperor and reunite the provinces, which will take you about 15 two-hour games to get to. So along which time you will sink ships and build ships and name ships and hire advisors and name them and train them and make your province better. And there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. I understand when you said 15, because reading the rules, you say about 15 games, give or take some. What's the most in all the playtesting that you've seen people usually play well you have to remember that the playtesters were were encouraged to get to the end of the story right so we said please you know you need to get to the end and tell us how it went so they were sort of incentivized to get to the end but it was 17 or 18 games maybe um would be the longer end the way the game works is there are um historical milestones that go out at the beginning of each game uh be the first to I'm going to make some up, you know, explore this or do this or, you know, build a tower to the heavens. And so when you when you do that, you get more glory for that particular milestone. It's like a moment in history. And then you'll go to the book and you'll read about your accomplishment in the history book, the captain's book. Some of the milestones say right on them, unlock. And, you know, when you get to that, you're going to unlock another box, another treasure chest and integrate whatever's in there into the world. So you can see like, okay, if I do this one, uh, we're going to get some more goodies. 
you know, that we're going to we're going to get the next section of the story. So it is entirely in the player's control of how fast they want to go through those. You're obviously will want to because you get points for it. You get glory for it. But it is entirely possible. And I've seen it in some games where people don't get a milestone the whole game. Like you raid me and you sink me and then I get revenge and I sink you. And this sort of war breaks out where everyone's running around sinking each other and building up their guns. And then the game's over without anyone getting a milestone and the game just like, okay, I'll just wait. You come back and when you're ready to tell the story, we'll we'll pick it up from here. And I think you just brought up a very important point that, you know, we all know Pandemic Legacy, number one, BGG, everybody loves it. Some of us get to play it a second time. Why are you playing it a second time, Tony? Tell We're us. We're not going to go in there. That is for our spoiler <laughs> Pandemic Legacy show, okay? Okay. Plain and simple. You could just say you messed up a rule and you have to play it again. <laughs> I did not mess up a rule. My play group did, and it's not my oh, fault. Oh, your play group if did. You, okay. If you had a good time and you felt it was a fun game, then you didn't mess it up. You're absolutely right. We had an incredible time. and Oh, Rob, he messed it up. He messed it up big I time. It's okay. It's fine. But moving forward, let's move <laughs> forward. Let's sail to victory here. So what's the biggest thing Pandemic Legacy players need to know? about Seafall when they say, oh, it's a legacy game and I just played this incredible, most in, most uh, audacious game. What do they need to be wary of besides it's not co-op? It's not a co-op. It's competitive. How cutthroat it is, is really up to the playgroups. Um, in the game, players can choose to raid each other a lot or raid each other not at all. And the game, it works with both directions. If you don't raid each other, it becomes more of a Euro game where you're engine building and kind of getting into a race to see who can get more glory from each other. Um, but you never really go backwards. If you raid each other, you can steal things like treasures from other people's you know, treasure rooms and steal glory from them. Or sink their ship. Well, you can't sink their ships at the beginning. It's pretty obvious you're going to get to. You can see where the rules are going to go. <laughs> um, I, I just don't let people do it game one because that's all they did. Right? They were just like, oh, we can sink each other. And then the game would be like four hours of nothing happening. So I'm like, there's a treaty. None of one can sink each other. <laughs> so you can sink each other to or, or raid each other to steal goods or sink ships. And you can, you know, make people afraid to leave their harbor or build these these garrisons and these gun towers. And that works as well. It's just much more of a cutthroat, competitive, warlike nature. And each group can kind of set it. But what a group should know is it's competitive. It can be cutthroat at times if the group wants to. And the games last about twice as long. Like a Pandemic Legacy is about an hour long and these are about two hours long. And you're right. I mean, reading the rule book to get ready for this, you said this is medium weight. I'm like, this this rule book is heavy. I mean, Wow. It's one of those things that's it's it's tricky to write because being a legacy game, I have to like kind of be vague about things and say like, you know, explain rules so when you get later rules, the earlier rules still make sense. So in so in some ways, uh, it it is a bit more dense than it appears to be. Um, what you do on a turn is you basically decide which one of four guilds you're going to hire. You're either going to use your soldiers to raid, your explorers to explore. Your builders to build either ships or buildings or your merchants to buy or sell goods. And then you pick the actions that they can do and you, and you do them. Um, that's, that's kind of the basic thing. So on your turn, you're going to do two actions, but you're limited to within a guild. Okay, I'm going to do the merchants. I'm going to sail and then buy goods. And it's very, it's very easy to get your head around what to do where the game rewards people is sort of optimizing the system, being one turn ahead of everyone else, not wasting your actions 
you know, being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm actually looking at the rule book right now. And, and Tony, I saw that too. It's like, wow, there's a lot going on here, but a lot of it's set up and explaining the components. Mm-hmm. And this game has a lot of components yes. compared to uh, Pandemic Legacy. Expect a lot more cards and components and everything. But on page 13 of the rule book, it's just what you said, uh, Rob. It's five steps. Yeah. You hire an advisor, activate an advisor, the higher the guild, claim milestone, exhaust your active advisor. That is all a player's turn. And then you go through the next several ex- uh, pages explaining all this. And you said that, you know, you, you skipped the first game of, of being able to raid ships and everything. See, I kind I liked that as I was reading, it, I thought, Oh, this is kind of cool. You're playing a new game. Instead of throwing every single rule at you that you can do on your, uh, your first game, the first game just kind of eases you into yeah. it. So you can't raid. I believe you can't research. Correct. There was a couple of things that just like, okay, we see this is coming, but our first game, we can't do it. So it kind of makes the first game, okay, I see how the mechanics work. And then as you said, all right, now we start applying the stickers. Just like if you play a Pandemic Legacy, uh, in the rule book, there's places where you can apply stickers where the rules are being changed. Well, it's obvious that written that way here in this rule book too, because there's spots for like rule nine, rule 10, rule 11. And so the rules will change over time, just like Legacy. So I actually appreciated the fact that it kind of like, if it's a medium weight game that first game will probably feel a little bit lighter and then it just kind of builds upon that yeah there's a in seafall there's a prologue which does exactly that there is nothing you can do in that game that will permanently help or hurt you for the campaign right your ships can sink you can have a disaster of a game um, or you can get everything right right away but it lets you figure out the system for exploring oh wow i just sank i guess i needed to that number was too high i shouldn't do that you can make the Islanders mad with your entity tokens. You can you can do everything wrong. And then at the end of the prologue, you'll be like, okay, I get it now. And then when you start game one, you have some experience of what to do. And then things start to count a little bit more. You just mentioned it. Enmity tokens. Yes. Enmity tokens. That um, on the rule book jumped out at me. Can yeah. you talk about, because they seem, that seems to be a huge, huge part of this game and how it interacts. Yeah. The idea came to me, you know, three years ago now. I remember I was having a burger at lunch, place down the street, and I was doodling and trying to figure out what this game was about. And um, and I said, is there a way to duplicate how much France and England hated each other for 100 years? And I wrote that question down. I was like, hell yeah. And I underlined it. And I didn't know how to do that. And what it eventually turned into was this enmity system, which does a couple things. Um, another thing to either warn people about or they can look forward to is Seafall contains a lot of big words. At some point, I'm like, I've got appellation. I've got, uh, I've got entity. There's a couple others where I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is the best word. And it just sounds like I'm like, I fell into a thesaurus. Um, so anyway, enmity tokens, every, every province at the beginning of the game gets eight. And what those are is every time you do something where you're a jerk, you have to pay at least one, and possibly more to the person that you were a jerk to. Now, that could be an island. You could ruffle the natives, either deliberately or accidentally, through sort of stomping on their sacred grounds. Um, Although it won't be an accident. You'll usually make a choice where you know you might have to pay some enmity. Um, But raiding is always a definite thing. If I am going to raid a spot on an island, if there's a good there, if they are selling some iron and I say, you know, retail is for suckers, uh, and I send my ship in and I raid it, I know in return I'm going to leave an enmity token. And what that means is there's a couple things. One, 
Uh, you only get eight of them. So after you've used all eight in a game, unless you have an advisor or power that lets you get them back, you you can't do any more bad things. Like that sort of, those options go away. And um, well, I guess there's two more things. The second thing is if you go to a place where they already have your enmity, like if I raid someone on one turn and then I go back the next turn and I want to raid them again, their defense goes up depending on how many enmity tokens they have. And then the third thing is not in the prologue, you get a chance to play around. But in the main game, enmity can become permanent stickers that will stay on the board, either on a province or on an island, and will take many, many games for you to get rid of. So you can be the biggest jerk in the world to someone once or twice, um, but it's really hard to be consistently a jerk in this game. Well, that's good. I actually read, I believe, in the rules where if you run out of tokens that you can't take an action that requires Yes. You can't consciously do it. So if I have no enmity tokens... I can't go raid. Like, I just don't have any enmity to give. Now, if I do something and I'm exploring and I make a decision and then I'm in that that chapter book and the chapter book says, hey, you know, you owe some enmity um, because I don't have any left. Instead, I lose glory, which are the victory points. But what this does is even in the heaviest player versus player uh, games, it really is a cap to... You have to make a decisive strike. This is not a game where you can be a, a medium-level pirate on an ongoing basis because you'll run out of enmity, right? You have to either be a light skirmisher and do one here, one there, one here, one there, or you need to come in and drop like five in some horrendous assault on someone's, you know, treasure room where you run away with something vital. Like, you know, it wants to be that game-winning moment where you, you break in and you run away with some sacred treasure. Um, but... You've just dropped five enmity. Chances are some of that's going to stick and become stickers, and they're going to start the next game already on defense against you, right? You you cannot duplicate that. They'll see your ships coming over the horizon, and they're like, nope, and you will not be able to raid them again easily for a couple games. And you and you talked about stickers and putting things on the board. Yes. Even though it get, gets to the soul of us, and board gamers are like, but like you've pointed out back with Pandemic Galaxy, it's a piece of cardboard. You can put stickers all over this place. This is going to be so much fun. Yeah, well, actually, in this game, a lot of the board starts empty. So a lot of people with Risk, especially with Risk, and a little bit with Pandemic, talk about this legacy idea of being destruction, right? Because, you know, ripping up cards, which was always a little... It happens rarely, but carries a lot of... Uh, gets a lot of attention. In Seafall, a lot of the board starts out empty, and the islands you do know, you don't know what's on them. So you can't actually, you play this game until you explore it and finish it. So you have to go out, and the stickers you're going to be adding are, hey, we know that there's a mine here, and you can get gold. And over here, these are some natives who will help uh, improve your guns if you sail in and, and go over here. And over here, you can buy linen. And, you know, my field now got better, and it produces more, so I get more gold every turn. So you are building up from, if you think of it like, a, uh, if you think of Europe, you know, in 1492, at the beginning of the European age of exploration and colonization, it looks very different than it did 150 years later in terms of uh, colonies and, you know, achievements and ships and how far it can go. And this game tries to duplicate some of that progression in terms of provinces building in strength yeah so as you as you go out and explore you you find the islands you determine the types of resources they have so there's a, a resource mechanic yep. to it that you 
collect resources, you come back and uh, bank those resources. And in that vein, it does sound very much like a Euro-y type game. But I did notice in here that uh, we talk about Endeavors. Yes. Where there's dice in the game, and people are like, whoa, whoa, or there's dice in my Euros, I don't like it. Can you explain how the Endeavor Well, I've works? also seen people online saying, oh, I was going to buy Seafall, but I don't like Euros. Right? Okay. And so, <laughs> what I have, well, I've just tried to make a fun game. Right? And so, I didn't want to say, like, it, it needs to be a Euro, or it needs to be a Meritrash, or it needs to be this, or it needs to be that. I'm like, I just want to tell a story. And I had a lot of stuff going in, and part of the reason this took a while is I... I left Hasbro and I'm like, no more Monopolies for me. I'm going to make the biggest game ever. And then I did and it was bloated and it took four hours to play. And so I started chopping things back. Um, and where we ended up, out of the four guilds, uh, two of them, the Merchant Guild and the Builders Guild, are very much a Euro-style gameplay. It's an engine building. Um, you go out, you buy goods, you can sell them for a profit, you can discount when you buy things, you can buy treasures, you can buy buildings, you can buy ship upgrades, you can get gold... There is no luck involved, and you can build and, and merchant your way to victory by getting glory by doing this. Um, the downside to this is there's no luck at the beginning, but it is possible to lose these things through theft or mishap. Like if you improve your ship, um, you will get a very piece of cardboard you, you buy. Basically, you get a glory. So I can each ship can have two upgrades, so I upgrade it twice. I have two glory. If that ship sinks, I lose my two glory. So the victory points are luck-free, but temporary. The other side of the coin is the Soldier's Guild and the Explorer's Guild let you go out and search and raid, but that's luck-driven. You have to build dice. It's called Endeavors. It's basically a dice pool. You want to add dice and you want to roll successes. So there is a chance that you could roll really poorly, although the game has ways to mitigate that. Um, you can have fortune tokens to hold off a, a bad roll. But the nice thing about an Endeavor is if you roll well, you get glory for the endeavor, and that's like just something that you did that can never be taken away from you. So do you want to play it safe and steady at the beginning, knowing it can be lost, or do you want to roll dice and be a little risk risky, but if you get it, it's yours forever? So I tried to give a different path for people depending on how they like to play their games. But in those paths, you can shift from path to path, right? Oh, yeah. I would encourage people to do that. Um, you know, when you play game one, you'll think, oh, I'm going to be a merchant or I'm going to be a pirate. And you'll learn what you like and what you don't. But realistically, within a game, you have to do a little bit of each. And then in certain games, you'll look at the board and realize, oh, you know, like this is not a good game for exploring. We've kind of, we've we found a lot of islands and everything on the islands has kind of been explored. So unless someone is willing to go out and explore and look for a couple new islands, there's not going to be a lot of exploring this game. And so the smart players will say, I think this is a game for me to become a merchant you know, and maybe just explore one island, maybe find one new island, but get most of my glory through buying and selling. Um, so the game will shift around and you have flexibility within a game. Now, I happen to notice that how uh, one game is structured and it's uh, a winner plus six rounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, one thing that I like that uh, the first player token, the Astro Astrolabe, yeah, see, yeah, there's goes to the person with the least amount of glory in yes. the game, which is kind of neat. So instead of fighting for who's going to be first player, it's is that meant to be somewhat of a catch up mechanic? It is. Um, when the game starts, the first year, one of the things that you carry through from game to game are your rankings, which basically show you it's it's Prince and then Duke. Um, I'm going to forget one. Prince, Duke. What am I forgetting? Uh, Count. Baron and Lord, Lord and Lady. 
um, in that order in a five-player game. And that basically lets you know your ranking of the campaign. Like if the campaign ended right then, whoever had the Prince card would win. And so you sit around the table from lowest rank to highest rank. And so whoever has, whoever is losing gets the astrolabe at the beginning of the first year. And then you go around and you go upwards in terms of, of rank um, with the prince taking the last turn of the round, which means they might not get the building they want. They might not get the advisor they want. And then at the end of a year, you look at who's losing that particular game and you shift it over there to that person. And these are all little ways of, of trying to balance it because unlike the other two legacy games I've done, like if I pick the green province at the beginning of game one, I am the green province for 15 games. And so there had to be all these balances so that if I started winning, I didn't run away from with it. And if, if I started losing, I didn't get discouraged without it feeling like some heavy handed socialism, you know, like pulling too many strings. Along with that now, I'm, we're jumping all over the place, but that's yeah. just how we teach games here. But that's okay. He ain't kidding either. <laughs> no, it's nice. It's, <laughs> Which is why he's having to play Pandemic Legacy again. But go ahead. Ooh. That's, I'm fine. Whatever. So anyway, the advisors. That was step yeah. one, by the way, which you've already jumped past, Marty. But the advisors, you get to keep <laughs> one at the end of the game. So are you limited by your gold other than you can buy as many advisors? And the important part of advisors is they give you bonuses. So yeah. And, and you can level up advisors. Is that correct? Yeah. So you just kind of uh, talked about a lot of things there. An advisor, there's a little advisor market and there's five of them. It's called, called a forum that are for sale and you can buy them with gold or with another currency called reputation. And when you buy an advisor, they go into your council room and once per year for a turn, you can take them out and they will give you a boost with whatever you're doing. They might let you buy more goods or get a discount for building or add extra dice if you're raiding. Um or, or lots of other interesting things. And then at the end of your turn, they go back to your council room, but face down until the winter. I always joke that they're European. They work like one, one month and then take the rest of the year off. <laughs> oh, I would do it if I had a chance. <laughs> oh, I would too. <laughs> I always say it for the laugh. So you would, in, in, you could buy as many as you like. Realistically, you'll need, you know, I mean, you could, you don't have to buy any, but you'll be very inefficient. But the game lasts about two, two and a half years and you get them, you know, so you need six, maybe give or take, depending on what you're doing. Or if you buy one and then realize, oh, that was dumb. I don't need them. You might you know, buy a different person. And then at the end of the game, everyone gets to keep one advisor. So at the start of the next game, you've got one person on turn one without spending any money um, that you can sort of like, I'm going to keep this explorer because next game, first thing out, I want to explore that new island that we found, or I want to explore the top of that mountain because I think I'll have the dice to get there next game. And you get to name them. And to your point, you get to train them. So someone might give you one extra die in game one. And then at the end of the game, you train them and then they give you two extra dice in game two. And then they might give you four extra dice by game four. And so that that number, which was very unreachable in game one, your ship's gotten better, your advisors have gotten better. Suddenly you realize that you, you have the dice needed to get up to the top of that mountain and see what's there. Now, you bring up the point about the end of the game. You're, you're naming people and everything. And one of the concerns with a lot of legacy games is like, oh, I need to find the same group to play with over and over again. Yeah. And I think anybody that's any, played any legacy games knows that probably the best way to experience the game is play it every single game with the same group so you can kind of have the same experience together. But you do have rules in the book about if somebody has to jump in or leave, 
you can do that if needed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, basically it says, you know, someone can't make it for whatever reason. There's four players and someone has to work later. The kid gets sick or they just, you know, don't want to show up or whatever. You can play the game without them. And there's a way when they come back in the next game or two games later to kind of catch them up. Right. Your province fell into civil disarray. But now that you're back in it, you know, you get this bonus and this bonus and you can do that. And and then um, you're off and running and you're caught back up. Um, it's funny. Anything, any cards that they hold from game to game, like say an advisor, can be raided in the games that they're not there. Um, their ships will just sit in their harbor and play defense. But the players who are there could go and like, hey, I want that advisor. I'm going to go raid it. Because Tony's not here and, you know, he should have showed up. And I really left that in the group's hands because I didn't want to say whether you could or you couldn't have people game the system. Because if your friend honestly at the last minute has a meeting and they can't make make it, don't raid them. But if this is the third time in as many weeks that they cancel at the last minute, steal their stuff. Right. I really, you know, I wanted to leave it up to the players in the situation to see what to do there. Well, Tony can't be here because he either has like a movie night or he's playing basketball yeah. or, or something. So, yeah, this is definitely the Tony rule right here. Yeah. Hey, I, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Truth hurts. Yeah, it does hurt, but that, that is so neat that you can do that. So I don't want to stop talking about the game, but I need to summarize because I'll lose track here. So first off, I got some dice rolling I can do. Yeah. I, I can attack people's stuff. Yes. I can be a jerk to the islands that are out there by raiding them, but they may come back and haunt me and bite me in the butt. Yep. Excellent. Or I can be a nice guy and be a merchant. I can I can explore my ship and I got little plastic ships to move around the board. Yep. I, it's a it's a no brainer, Marty. Go buy it. Yeah, and uh, also <laughs> we didn't talk about you can make your province better. You can build buildings in your province. Buildings? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You build you build structures in your province. You can build gun towers and markets and banks and I, I can't remember the starting building, so I may have just said one that comes out in an unlock, but it's not a big deal. You got tombs and ancient statues and strange temples. Oh, man. Maybe. Maybe. maybe that's maybe. that's rumored. That's rumored. That's question. <laughs> yeah, so we got to play this game two years ago at BGG Con, and, and granted, I'm sure it's been through a lot. But it's hard to remember exactly all that we did, but it was a lot of the same aspects where I remember being able to build buildings in your in your arbor and everything like that and you went out and explored and the resources and everything i'm sure a lot of it's changed but kind of the over the past couple of years the the basic game that part of the exploring and raiding everything i guess really hasn't changed no the the basic idea of what i wanted people to do has remained largely the same for the past couple of years what i just did was I, I kept going through game design 101, you know, almost embarrassingly, like, can I make this simpler? Can I make this simpler? And every time I made it simpler, it didn't make it worse. It just made it easier to understand and the game shorter, right? And I kept thinking, no, 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 that's going to that's gonna ruin it. And then I would get frustrated and replace some elaborate mechanism and, and subsystem with something really easy. And everyone was like, oh, that's much better. And so um, working with Matt Leacock on Pandemic, I mean, that guy designs tightly designed games and we questioned every single thing that was in there not that we got every single thing right but we questioned everything and so when i applied that same uh thought to seafall it just sort of collapsed back down so yeah a lot of what you were doing before is exactly the same thing now but just faster and more elegant so marty what i remember from that playthrough we did two years ago was rob sitting in the corner thinking 
these guys are idiots. We, they're going out there and attacking, and they're going to lose their ships. And sure enough, we went out there and we lost our ships. That was that yeah. Was great. Well, now that's why there's a prologue, oh. right? Because I'd always see someone in game one go, so I can just attack, and I and I want to be like, well, yeah, but you don't really have enough <laughs> dice, and you haven't bought an advisor, and you haven't upgraded your guns. I mean, like you're sort of just a guy in a rowboat with a stick shouting. And they would sink and then they would get very upset, like, oh, I've lost this game and I'm going to lose the campaign. So the prologue is there for you to really see how that doesn't work well. Now, if I remember correctly, Tony, wasn't Rodney playing that with us? I was fixing to say that's the Rodney Smith rule. This is the Rodney rule. Stop attacking on the first turn. Jeez, dude, come on. (laughs) I forgot. Yeah, he was there. He was there. I remember. Well, yeah. I mean, he was also there for Chronicles, which we'll mention later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, a Rodney rule from Chronicles 2? Because he needs one for that one also. Uh, yeah, we redid that game entirely after BGG <laughs> just because of Rodney. I We're knew like, it. Oh, my gosh. We can't make this come. I, you know, I feel bad even saying this in jest. He's going to be doing the Watch It Played uh, stuff for Seafall. So it's he's going to love it. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. But... You know, if you go print out the rule book, don't sit there and think, oh, my gosh, you know, this is this thing is long. It flows so well. It's a, it's a quick, easy to follow. And I don't think I can screw it up much. Oh, my gosh. That is the curse of death, right? Kiss of there death right there. There we go. You got a prologue. It steps you through it. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'll be all over the prologue multiple times. I'll probably <laughs> play it by myself. I mean, <laughs> Leader cards, reference cards, stickers. Oh, this this is going to be so much fun. Now, we do have a few Seafall uh, questions that were uh, asked from our uh, guild on BGG. We'd asked, hey, Rob's going to come on. You got any questions? And there were some Seafall specific ones. One of them was, why is Kevin Wilson listed only as an initial developer? Well, because he developed it initially. Okay, good answer. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Kevin and I, I left Hasbro and he left Fantasy Flight at roughly the same time. And we were both trying to build a business and work on games. And I drove Seafall into a ditch probably about two years ago right now. And I reached out to Kevin and I said, hey, man, I'm stuck. Can you give me a hand? You know, can you help me develop it? And he was working on stuff and I was working on stuff. He's like, yeah, I can do it for a couple months. And then after that, like I got some other projects I'm going to have to get back to. So from about May through August of 2014, you know, he he was the one who helped me get rid of some subsystems and kind of clean it out and really sort of got me back on track. And then he's like, well, but I got to get back to these projects I was working on. And and um, I was I was paying him just you know, out of, out of pocket, like a consulting fee. And I'm like, that's good. Cause I'm in startup mode and you know, my budget's running out. And, and so we, it was just a initial development and, you know, I wanted to make sure he was recognized for that. There's the long and short of it. It was professional consulting because he's worked on such big games before. I'm like, he's not going to get scared. Right. So this is a very interesting one from the guild. What game would you recommend to bring people into before they step into Seafall? If, if you're building a gamer group to launch them into Seafall, mm-hmm. what would be, besides your prologue, what would be a good introductory game for that group? I think the correct answer is Merchant and Mar- Merchants and Marauders. And the reason I'm being hesitant is I've actually never played it. I stupidly thought when I was starting it, I don't want to be influenced by anything else. I want to make my own game. I don't do that anymore. If I'm making a game in a genre, I go play, you know, a half dozen games that all are in that genre. I've had people say, oh, it's like Merchants and Marauders, but in Seafall, the combat is simpler. 
but it gives you the same idea of moving ships around and managing your turns and thinking of movement and island and picking up and delivering. And, and, um, I think it's got, uh, some, it's a cousin to it or Seafall's a cousin to it. Um, it's a fantastic question and I will come up with an answer that's better than this, but not while we're here talking, but like <laughs> at four in the morning or something, I'll go, Oh, I know what it was. Well, well, you're welcome to visit the rolling dice and taking names guild and you can post that response right there. Hint, hint. Yeah. If I, if I do think of one, I will, I will definitely do so. How did this game end up with plat hat games? Well, it was always going to be with them in some way. Um, when I was leaving Hasbro, I know Colby as a friend, and I said, look, man, I um, I said, I don't want to be in a booth opposite you at Gen Con. That seems silly. But if I just had a traditional traditional designer royalty, I know this thing's going to take me a long time. It's not going to be worth it to me to do it. So I feel like I need to kind of publish it myself. And so at the time, we came up with kind of an unusual co-publishing venture that I was going to be doing certain things, but I was going to use him to do some of the fulfillment and the logistics and things that I at the time knew nothing about. And and it was always going to be a bit of a partnership between my company and his, and I was going to try to raise the money. And then what happened was uh, about a year ago, a little more when pandemic legacy pre-orders were coming in and we were seeing the numbers for the, the, the not necessarily the pre-orders, like the sales projections from different countries. Um, and my company does make a game now called fun employed. So I have done logistics and shipping and, you know, credit and all of these things. Colby said, given your experience on fun employed, do you think you're really going to be able to produce and fund this? If these numbers jump up to something even close to pandemic. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I think this is the type of thing that I didn't want to necessarily do a Kickstarter for it. I didn't know if I was going to get a bank loan. Like I, when I looked at the business, I thought, you know what? I just want to be a designer. I want someone else to figure this all out. So we just turned what had been a partnership into a little bit more of a traditional publisher designer uh, model. And it's not exactly like it because I was saying before, I spent like three years on it and there's different things. But it's it's close enough to be a traditional model that it worked for both our needs. Ironwall Games. Where'd, yeah. that, where'd, where'd that come from? Where'd the name come from? Um, I just thought about that today. The name came from, um, I, w- I knew I was leaving Hasbro and I wanted to name a company and I was driving back from the supermarket, the next town over. And I drove by a street and it said iron wall lane. And I was like, what is that? It's like this little suburban development. I'm like, iron wall. That's amazing. I'm like, how'd they get that past the city council? Like an iron, like it's not a gated community. And I could not figure out. And I became fascinated with it. I'm like iron wall. And I was sort of going around for a week and I'm like, I should name my company after that, like iron wall games. And and so I do it and I incorporate and I register it. I make a logo. And this was in the summer and I drive by in the fall and I realized there had been leaves covering half the sign. And the sign actually says Cronval Lane. It does, it does not even say Ironwall. It's K-R-O-N-V-A-L-L. And my mind, being such like a geek, turned Cronval into Ironwall, which either makes it better or worse. I don't know. So I drove by today. I'm like, oh, hey, Cronval. Yeah, you were Ironwall in my head f- four years ago when I drove by it. Yeah, I must admit, Ironwall sounds better than Cronval games. Cronval. Actually, my first choice of games is I wanted to call it Brass Lantern Games because I was a big fan of uh, Zork and interactive fiction and you always had a Brass Lantern. Mm-hmm. And, and and someone had taken it and they were squatting on it because they were developing a game for the Palm Pilot. And this was in like 
2012. Like no one was doing, it wasn't even close. Like even now it's ridiculous. Even then it was still ridiculous. So I reached out to them and said, Hey, I'm just starting a small game company. You're kind of sitting on this. You're probably not doing a Palm Pilot game. Can I, can we reach a deal? And I think they were out in California and they saw this as like a chance to make it big because some game company wanted it. And they started throwing around ridiculous numbers. I'm like, okay, so the answer is no, you don't want to make a deal for it. And so I went in a different direction. Cronval. Cronval, not Ironwall. Although, you know, I didn't know when I was leaving Hasbro whether I was going to be a publisher, a designer, a developer. Like, And, and so I think Ironwall Games went out there, but it's it's now moving back to the place that I run my money through for tax purposes and business purposes. And I just want to be doing more designing games more than like publishing games, if that makes sense. I'm sorry. Did I just hear you say you launder your money through what? (laughs) Through a, through a corporation, which is a person. Corporations are people and I give my money to the corporation and then the corporation pays me. Yep. That's how it works. Hey, that's how they do it in Boston. (laughs) That's right. I thought that was Jersey. Yeah, that's how we do it. We incorporate a business and then have checks made out to that business and then pay ourselves (laughs) from the business. It's all very sinister. Uh, So so you've been taking business lessons from Bonacore. Yes. Uh, Excellent. Okay. So by the way, we are moving into the uh, more general questions from our guild. So here's another one. Are there any designers that you get excited? Excited to hear about that has a new game coming out. I'm going to yes is the answer, but I'm not going to answer it. I tend not to answer games I like, games I don't like, designers I like, I don't because I will leave someone out who I like, and then I'll come off as rude. And I never like to disparage other people's work because most people are trying very hard to make good games, and if it doesn't work for me, it doesn't mean it's not a good game. In general, I. I like games that tell stories because I like to play games like the games I like to make. So I like games that are kind of adventure and like to tell stories. But in in general, I kind of like the right game for the right time, right? I mean, my kids are older now, but when my kids were younger, I liked kids' games. And when my mom visits, she likes simpler games or she likes trick-taking card games. And then I might go to, I'm going to a friend's house in a couple of weeks and we're going to play some real fringy role-playing games. And then there's another person, a friend of mine, who loves Euros, and I'll play that. There's it, To me, the game is you're complementing the situation with the people. But if it's just me and I'm going to pick what's going to be on the table, I'm going to want a bit of a story. Are you okay with people taking the term legacy and just associating it with all these types of games that you know you play for a while and then you develop a story over time? Are you good with that? Well, I am good with that. Well, whether I'm good with it or not, people are going to do it, and that's kind of cool. That is, but I cool. am good. That is cool, and I am. But I, I am good with it. So I went off and I said, "Well, this is an idea. I don't think anyone's ever done campaign style and, and episodic stuff in board games quite like this before." And I thought that everyone was going to be outraged, as opposed to just a section of people being outraged. And but I'm like, I really think this will be fun, and I'll do it. And the fact that it's proven to be accepted by a number of people and people like it and other people are doing it is it just blows me away and it's a tremendous compliment when i hear about it i think oh wow that's that's cool i did something that another person that i respect liked enough to want to do something similar and this kind of falls to another question so as people start making games inspired by yours would you rather they find terms for that style of gameplay are you okay with them using the term legacy is kind of an industry standard well it hasn't happened yet so i don't know how i feel like in 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 theory, I think, like I said before, like, well, that's neat. Um, someone's going to do something. I get to play one, right? I'll get to sit down and experience one from the other side. They're going to come up with some something new and cool 
that I wouldn't have thought of. And I'll be, oh, that's great. You took this idea I had and then you made it better and then I'll take their game and maybe I'll make a game, right? And that's that whole building of like common knowledge and sharing of ideas that happens in most industries, especially creative ones. I guess a game could come out and call us it'll call itself a legacy game and, and do things that to me, I'm like, that's not a legacy game. That's that's a campaign game because you didn't make it permanent or and or it'll be something where I'll feel like it doesn't fit my definition. And maybe at the time I will be off put by it, but it'll probably last about four minutes and then I'll just then I'll just kind of move on. I mean, what's a deck builder? Like what's a collectible card game versus a trading card game versus a living card game? It's like, OK, it's some sort of cards where you have a large section and you do a subsection and then everyone does it differently. That's what makes it fun. Interesting. So over time, as your company has grown and this hobby of ours continues to grow, as you explain what you do, what kind of looks or reactions do you get from people who, who don't know you, who aren't in your general populace? Well, I'm more surprised when, wait, were you saying when people find out what I do for a living? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's most of the time. I mean, because I work from my out of my house in a little bedroom community in Massachusetts. And when I meet people and I say, I make board games, they usually have to correct me. So they go, so like video games? And I go, no, I, I said the word board games. <laughs> and they go, oh, like Monopoly or Clue? I go, well, I used to work on those because I worked for Hasbro, but I don't work there anymore. But now I kind of do my own. And I'm usually trying to explain and then I'll find one. I'm like, They'll find some game they kind of know they saw, whether it's Settlers of Catan or Cards Against Humanity or some game that they're, oh, my friend plays games with those. They had a game. But then most people say, well, that sounds fun. That's cool. Sometimes you get these really bizarre, a lot of times people then like, I have a game idea. And then that's the next follow up. And then one person one time said, oh, I wouldn't think there would be any more ideas for new games. <laughs> And I said, yeah, they don't write books or make movies either. They kind of wrapped that all up. Oh, I think they did. Yeah, well, that is true, actually. <laughs> what is your preference in playing an RPG, a GM or a player? I tend to GM because I like telling stories. And when I'm the GM, I'm I'm constantly engaged because I'm trying to keep everyone happy and keep the story moving and keep things going. And I like the thrill of the tightrope back. Actually, I'm doing a audio play role-playing game podcast with some of my friends right now called the unmarked which you can find over on the gamers with jobs it's one word um website gamerswithjobs.com um and we've done six chapters of that and it's just us talking and making it up and i'm gming um when i'm a player i'm always a little bit of a gm i think we all are when we play a role-playing game mm -hmm. and you're like oh should i do this should i not is this going to ruin it Oh, that guy's not really been talking for a while. Let me see if I can get him back in. At least that's what I do. But I do find that if I'm a player and the story moves away from me, sometimes that's great because I can just chill out. But then sometimes I it's I have a hard time getting back into it. I'm like, oh, I've, I've been sort of on the sidelines for 15 minutes. My brain kind of went into like just kind of idle mode right now, um, which is just me being like, I don't know, middle-aged guy or something. When you are a player, what can, what's your favorite class to play as? Um, if we're talking traditional D&D, &D, which I'm traditional, guessing. Traditional, yeah. Yeah. Um, whoever I play, and this will come not as a surprise to anyone, I always play someone who's a talker, right? And so I will play a bard. I will play a fast-talking thief. I will play a, a mouthy uh, wizard. But usually as I get older, I try to play more nuanced characters. When I was a kid, it was always like half-elf, half uh, ranger, uh, Ranger magic user. We're going to go first edition here. 
that's a lot of what I would play. Maybe a paladin once in a while. Never a straight up fighter. Uh, never an illusionist. Never a gnome. Never an assassin. You know, like I played a, in a campaign very briefly a couple years ago where I played a paladin who felt like his god had abandoned him. So his whole quest was to find his god and teach him a lesson. Okay, that's deep. Yeah, <laughs> like you know that sort of thing. But but I still got my powers from my god, and I thought he was just taunting me. And you know, like there was this whole you know complicated backstory. Like I you know can sometimes take it far deeper than roll for initiative. Right. Well, no, that I mean that's the way you're supposed to play those games. Yeah. Although in a couple of weeks I'm going out and I'm. Like I said, I'm going to this role-playing weekend with one of my friends, and he organizes things very well, and there's 28 games. People are slotted in, and it's three days, and people fly in, honestly, from around the world for it. And people are running the most amazing stories, homebrew things and these deep stories and, you know, like being in a Japanese uh, internment camp in, like, California in World War II and how that would feel like. And and what I'm running is C2, Ghost Tower of Inverness, first edition D&D tournament rules where you get points for doing things like i went as old school as old school could be like i i dusted out the the module from my basement and they actually you have points you can win the adventure oh that's cool it was a they were they ran it at origins in 78 or 79 i forget i just looked a couple days ago and you could get points as an individual and points as a group depending on how far you got what obstacles you found how many hip points of damage you did, how many hit points you of damage you took, and then they could weigh, and then they could say at the end of the, the convention, this group won. They had the highest score. And it is absolutely not where role-playing went beyond this little experimental phase. It was almost like they were doing duplicate bridge, but with role-playing, they were kind of trying to see if it would fit. And I've never played under those rules, so I remember they were in there, and I dusted it off, and I think I'm going to play two or three groups with it, and then be able to say, you guys won. And just you know, see why they did it and why they went away from it. If there was anything fun that was there. Now, did you play with first edition when you were younger? Yeah, I, I found D and D in 81 first edition. Like, so the, I was 11 at the time I was born in 1970. And so a lot of people who are a little bit older played it in the seventies. And so I was like, I was the kid who came along once it got sort of mainstream and popular, but it still was, you know, it was still pretty young. It was first edition. So I played a lot from 81 to about 84. 586 then got into high school and got a little too cool on the surface for it even though I wanted to but my friends didn't want to but I'd still had like the Dragonlance calendar in my room and would read the novels and would sort of get the modules and just read them and never play them and then when I got off to college second edition came out and I would look at it but I would play like once a semester I mean gaming was not nearly as mainstream in 1989 as it is now so um, there weren't as many gaming groups around and I was always just back and forth with role playing through the nineties, whether it was Ars Magica or D D or a couple other homebrew things that we did, and then I kind of tumbled backwards into board game design almost by accident. Um and so put role playing to the side and then devoured as many board games as I could to sort of catch up and be able to do my job at Hasbro. Yeah, but it all kind of fits because like you said, you like to play games that tell stories. So you definitely see where your RPG background is coming through in your games. A, a story that builds and progresses over time built into a board game. Yeah, I mean, the legacy thing is a mix of comic books, which I was a big fan of. Um, still, I'm a fan of them. I just don't collect them actively. And episodic TV like, you know, like a, like a, like Lost or something or, you know, Daredevil these days, something has a beginning, middle and end in role playing games. And then 
and even video games, which have a you know campaign mode and, and taking all of these disparate components and putting them together and saying, these are all very satisfying ways to uh, have entertainment and have gaming ent- entertainment. How can they work in this, this board game medium? Now, there's this one last question here, which I believe may be trying to set us up, but it's really not going to work because okay. it says, which is a better dessert, moon pies or beignets? Now, as the moon pie guys, I will say... Beignets are way better than moon pies. Yeah, beignets. Okay, that's an easy one. Yeah. Uh, I've well, been Cafe du Monde. Yeah, I mean, so I'm not a huge dessert guy. I'm a type 1 diabetic. So um, I... So that would be bad. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's actually, it's worse for type 2 diabetics. Type 1 diabetic is I would just have to take insulin for it. But it's like extra math and extra... It's not like a, a good habit. So I eat desserts sparingly. So I do not have a broad range of dessert options, but beignet is the uh, choice there. So good. Oh, yeah, they are. And when they're warm and see, now we're going back to oh, being to the food. See, now I want a beignet with uh, the yeah. powdered sugar on it. Oh, oh so, so good. <laughs> and Marty, you know, uh, before I was going to ask Rob, you know, we're going to run the um, Lord of the Rings D&D 5 edition that we talked about on future. I was going to invite him in, but now he's going, he's hardcore. I don't think he, he'd be kind of disappointed with us, you know? No, 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 no. I wouldn't be. What are you going to do? What are you going to do for this fifth edition Lord of the Rings? You're going to... So the people who uh, make the One Ring RPG right now... Yep. ...has gotten the rights to use the D&D 5 rule set. Okay. And they're going to incorporate it into the Lord of the Rings. Oh, that's great. That's and great. that's supposed to be coming out at Gen Con. What I do, I think I've done it every Gen Con since I've been in 99, is I try to find the most obscure role-playing... No, no, let me rephrase that. I play a a role-playing game that's obscure to me. That looks interesting. And sometimes they're genuinely obscure, and sometimes they're just ones that I haven't uh, seen. And then I come back, and every August I read the entire book, and I almost never play them because I just don't have a group to play it. But it always feeds my brain in terms of... um, you know, like new ideas and how do you do character and how do you do plot? And I read the one ring one was one I did a couple of years ago. And I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff that they did in there to try to make it feel like Tolkien. Cause obviously D and D was inspired heavily by Tolkien. And then, so you're doing a role-playing game and it's like, you, if you do it wrong, you get a photocopy of a photocopy, but they did it at least on paper. What I read, they did it. They did it right. It sounds interesting. A big Lord of the Rings fan here. So when Marty and I were talking about, it and we went and tried out Dungeons and Dragons Five. We were like, okay, this is interesting. This wild, but I'm just like, I will. I promise, I will GM this. And so we've been kidding around with it. But hey, I said, why not just throw it out there? We'll see how it goes. That's Marty. We could put people to sleep so quick. Me GMing a podcast. There we go. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that I mean, it's pretty rough. So earlier we had uh, kind of come full circle here. You, you've got Pandemic Legacy. It's yep. it's in the box. Uh, not Pandemic Legacy, I'm sorry. Seafall. Yeah. Uh, it's it's in the can, ready to go. Hopefully, it, the only thing left is the exciting part, getting out into people's hands and, and hearing what people are, are doing with it and everything. So with whatever you can share publicly, what are you working on now? I am working. I got to pull up my list of things that I'm working on. So that I can see what's public and what's not. I am Matt and I are working on Pandemic Legacy season two. Woohoo! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> that is uh, that's not really a surprise. We are not done, and we have no uh, plans to say when we're going to be done or when it's coming out. But we are we're working on that. And um, I am working on a game series called Chronicles, which is by Artana Games. I do a podcast with a guy named Dirk Niemeyer. And he came up with an idea a couple of years ago, 
like a year and a half ago, or he came up with before, but I heard like a year and a half ago of doing almost like a series of campaign games or almost a series of legacy games that let you write your own version of Western civilization. And the reason it's Western civilization is because that's the only thing we both knew. Like if this went really well, we would investigate Eastern civilization or sub-Saharan, you know, Africa civilization, but we're doing Western civ right now. It's actually what I have my college degree in. So you will play a game, you will play a series of games, each game, you will play multiple times and you will be building on the games earlier. Sort of like a cousin of a legacy game. So the first one is called um, Chronicles Origins. And it starts in the Stone Age and you play a bunch of different games. Maybe eight, maybe ten. We're still trying to figure it out. And each one creates a different tribe. And this tribe will have different experiences and make different choices. And what we're trying to show is you know, the personality of a tribe which becomes a culture, which becomes a civilization, can sometimes be shaped by a series of small decisions or, or medium decisions that will greatly shape how it sees itself and treats the world later on. So it's very role-playing, very storytelling, the, the Stone Age one. And then you'll, we'll fast forward to what we're calling the Bronze Age. It's not exactly the Bronze Age, late Bronze or early Iron Age. And now these civilizations have, these tribes have become kingdoms. And so you're no longer working within the tribal structure, you're working within a kingdom structure. So now you you aren't squabbling with your neighbors. Now you're going to war with your neighbors. And so if your tribe, if tribe A in the Stone Age made some decisions that made it very warlike, well, you fast forward to the Bronze Age and they're going to be much more militaristic than if they had made different decisions. Um, so we're trying to duplicate how the Persian Empire was different from Sparta, was different from the Assyrians, which was different from Egypt. And we're um, heavily involved with that. And you would play that eight to ten times. And at the end of which, you would be ready to move on to the next game. And, and if things go well, it'll be about a game a year that will be like a giant Civ game, but split into five or six pieces, each one its own game. That is a very ambitious project. It is. And I, we knew it was ambitious. And we had uh, something at BGGCon last year, and we revised it heavily and... Uh, they were talking about Kickstarters and, you know, now we're looking into it and we're like, okay, we don't know exactly when it'll come out, like either later this year, the first one, or maybe the beginning of next year. But it, since this is supposed to be the first game in a series, messing up the first game means there's no series. It's, it's, it's only late once, but it's bad forever is the line that I've right. heard and use. And so, um, and so I don't know exactly when it'll be out. I was emailing back and forth with Dirk on some stuff today, trying to get everything right in the early game so that later games can build off it, right? You have to be thinking, okay, well, will this give us what we need later? Is this enough game in the box? Is this is this telling enough story? Is this leading to the personalities of different kingdoms? You know, we could we were playing versions of the Bronze Age uh, last month and saying, well, this is, this is a good game, but I don't feel like your culture is different from my culture, right? And so how do we get much more of the fact that when... Sp- you hear Sparta now in modern time versus Athens, everyone immediately has a different mindset. And I know for those who are historians, those are more Iron Age than Bronze Age. So I said we're being a little little loose with the history. Uh, you know, and, and then so we've kind of gone back and be like, okay, we need to we need to treat these kingdoms as people. They are our actors in this world and they have to have motives and they need to have fears. They're not just armies moving around. Like we could make a war game and we could make a civ game, but we want a game where you have heroes and villains. And when I think it was the Assyrians, 
I, I could be wrong, but I think it was the Assyrians who were who were such jerks that as soon as the other minor kingdoms had a chance to overthrow them, they unified and did it in a heartbeat. Like they were some of the biggest villains of the ancient world. So we're trying to duplicate these these personalities of history as opposed to just being, okay, I'm I'm trading goods and now I've got three armies and you've got some spearmen and I've taken your coast. Like we want that, but we want it to feel more personal, if that makes sense. All I know is I had fun when yeah. we played it. <laughs> yeah, you played an early version of Stone and sometimes it worked really well. I remember it worked very well at your table and then other tables and other groups, it didn't work as well. And so we, we went back and we redid a lot of things. I think you would be able to see again, like Seafall, like, oh, I see how you got from here to here, right? It's it, it's it's the same ideas, hopefully done in a cleaner way. Well, I know you still got a lot more uh, to go with that one. That's one of those things that six, eight months from now, it's like, hey, Rob, you want to come on the show and talk about origins? So, you know, yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I'd love to do that. Um, I am working on a game called Mountains of Madness for Yellow, the publisher. Ooh, I was going to ask you, do you have something lighter coming out? Yes, this this is about 180 degrees from what I usually do, um, which is it's a Cthulhu game for people Ooh. who for people who don't really know much about Cthulhu and may not even Ooh. like Cthulhu that much. It is it is very light in Cthulhu, and I had a playtest group give me some feedback notes today saying. Those people who didn't know Cthulhu thought it was great. The people who do Cthulhu thought it didn't have enough Cthulhu. It wasn't a Lovecrafty enough. It is sort of a insane party game. And I use insane in the complete Cthulhu way. I always thought it was a shame that when you played a Lovecraft game or a Cthulhu game that only the characters got to go crazy. I said it would be a lot more fun if the players got to go crazy. Please don't be social deduction. Please don't be social deduction. It is not social deduction. Yes! What would you have done if I said it was social deduction? Then you would have just felt horrible. No, I wouldn't. I do not. <laughs> wow. I, I do not pull my jabs on social deduction games. Okay. <laughs> He's not a fan. Uh, no, basically this is a game. It's a cooperative game. There's no hidden trader, but it's a game of increasing inefficiencies. All you have to do is every turn you have to be able to communicate who's going to play what card. That's it. <laughs> That's it. You have 30 seconds as a group to decide who's going to play what cards to solve the the encounter that you're in. I love the sound of that. See, I love games where it's like the whole point of the game can be summarized in one sentence and that's it. And from what you just said, I can kind of, okay, I know what you're talking about. It's just the mechanics around it and how it works. Right. Yeah. So you'll flip a timer and you'll flip it and you'll be like, okay, uh, you'll have 30 seconds, which puts the panic on. And you're like, I can play two weapons cards and I can solve that and people, and but everyone's talking at the same time. Oh. But as you succeed or fail because it's a cthulhu game you start getting afflictions like i might only now talk to the person on my right and only listen to them (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) meanwhile the person to my right will only speak in a concerned whisper right so no one else can hear them (laughs) and someone else on the other side has just started multiplying all of the cards in their hand by four I've got 40 guns. No, you don't have 40 guns. Yes, I do. They're going insane. And you know that concern whisper for us old guys, Marty? It'd be normal speech. Yeah. Because we can't hear. Actually, my favorite one that's in there is the, while the timer, it's only when the timer's running. So you have this 30 seconds where, like, basically it's supposed to be hell breaks loose and everyone's trying to solve the problem, but they've all got an affliction, is the one where for 30 seconds you will not be silent even if you have to moan or say um like to fill it in so you're like i've got three weapons uh i can't play anything else uh right <laughs> like 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that sounds like a blast. So it is a Cthulhu party game. If you play at a brisk pace with about four people, it takes maybe like 45 minutes. And you get to the top, and then you have to run away from the mountain. And then at the end, if you've collected more good cards, then insanity cards, you win. And how far are you along in that I will process? be finished by Gen Con. So I'm in final, final rounds of testing. I've got pages of notes to look at. Well... I hope I'm close to done. If the pages of notes say I'm not close to done, I still have a deadline of Gen Con, but I'll have more work to do. That's to be uh, finished by Gen Con, not released at Gen No, and then released probably Gen Con of next year. Oh, the, oh, that sounds so good. That's so funny. See, that that's that's unique. Yes. Uh, like you said, the, the, the player's going crazy. That's a nice little spin on it. That's good. Yeah, it all came around from me trying to be a project manager for a, a game project and working with Hong Kong, Germany, and... <laughs> Someone who spoke French, Montreal, Paris, I can't remember. And we would have a meeting. And first of all, I'm a very, very bad project manager, which everyone learned the hard way. And so I would say, like, we're going to do this, right? And everyone would say, yeah. And I did not understand the nuances of culture. I did not understand, like, the nuances of language barrier. I had never worked internationally. And so I'd be like, we're doing this. And then two days later, everyone will have done something completely different from what we were talking about. And I go, we talked about this. What happened? I said, this is what it's like to go crazy. And then I knew I was going to work on that game. Like, that's it. Everyone agrees to play a card. And then you look at the cards that everyone played and no one played what they talked about. Like, how do I duplicate? How do like, I thought you were going to play a six. Oh, no, I, I said I could play a six, but I didn't hear you. Well, you should have told me to play the six. And um, yeah, this is like real And so life. it turned into this game. Yeah. yeah I, the only thing I've seen of this game that makes me well, not that concerned, pretend concerned is I've seen husbands and wives play it and then they get to the end and all this stuff breaks out like, you never listened to me. I said I was going to play the six, but you were too busy talking to Marty and you listened to him and you didn't listen to me. And I'm like, guys, 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 just a game, just a game. Um, so if you're the type of couple that snipes, you, know, you can skip this one. Uh, yes. So this will <laughs> not be a game in that I'll be playing with the neighbors, Marty. This would be one that I'm I'm not. So, Rob, we've kept you way, way, way too long here. So, what what's the name of the podcast? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned two things. I've mentioned the one that I'm on, which uh, I'm not on every episode. I'm like a rotating third guest. I'm on every month or six weeks. It's called the Game Design Roundtable. It is three game designers getting super nerdy about game design. It also has a pretty strong, at least when I'm on business sense, um, so there's a lot of people writing like, I have a game and I'm thinking of doing an app or I'm trying to kickstart. And I, and then we kind of break it down as business people and, and look at it from, um, if you just want to do it to have fun, go ahead. But if you want to do this to make some money, here's some of the questions you should be asking yourself. Um, so that's the game, game design roundtable. And then if you want to see me do some out there role-playing stuff, it's gamerswithjobs.com and the name of the role-playing thing. And I call it thing because it's, it's a mix of all sorts of mashups. It's um, called the Unmarked. So um, some people who are playing players, they're writing short stories that take place between the episodes. Some of the players have been inspired that they've written music around it. My wife did the the graphics for it. Like it's just been a bunch of friends goofing off and having fun. Cool. Man. That's too cool. Sounds good. You, you are a, a busy man. I know that you, it was probably a... You had a sigh of relief when you finally signed off on Seafall because it's been, I mean, what's the total number of years you worked on that from beginning to end? Three and a half. I figured, wow. I, I figured out that the United States spent less time in World War II than I spent on Seafall. 
<laughs> uh, so that was a, a very long project, uh, but it sounds exciting. It sounds like all the work and time and effort that you put into it uh, is going to come uh, to fruition, be a very successful game. I've heard the pre-orders at Plat Hat are going really well. And like we stated earlier, you can pre-order it now. And if you do it through Plat Hat, you get those awesome metal coins. There will be limited release at Gen Con. So if you do not pre-order that Thursday morning when the doors open outside, you better run to the PHG booth very fast if you want to get a copy. Yeah, you will make my kids day. I'm bringing my kids to Gen Con. And um, hopefully they'll be there to see uh, their dad. They're like, do people really want to meet you and play your games? I'm like, sometimes. What? Like, nah. See, see, that's the problem with kids. <laughs> they don't realize, you know. They're like, really? That's that's how it is. No, they realize it now. They just like giving me a hard time because they're teenagers, which is fine and appropriate. It's like you're just my dad. You're nothing special. <laughs> I tell you what. Why don't you put them in the um, mashup that's going on Saturday morning at Gen Con and have a lot of fun with them? What is the, the mashup? What is the mashup? What am I missing? Uh, as everybody stands at the doors waiting for him to. Oh, open. oh, yeah. That's Thursday morning. I- yeah, yeah. No, that's like a Who concert. I'm not letting him down near there. That is an old school reference there. Okay. That's that's <laughs> yeah. ni- that's nineteen seventy eight that reference, I think. In Cincinnati. W-K-R-P. And there was a special episode on WKRP about it. <laughs> Rob, if people want to uh, communicate with you or just uh, watch you on social media or anything, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at robdavio.com. That's R-O-B-D-A-V-I-A-U. And I'm pretty good at answering uh, uh, Twitter. You can go to robdavio.com, which is my website, which contains a little bit more information about me. And if you poke around, you'll find my email. I answer short questions very quickly and long questions very rarely. <laughs> nice and what uh, shows and uh, conventions will we see you at this summer Uh, I will be at Gen Con I will be at uh, Essen Spiel in Germany and I will be at BGG Con Tony's sad because you didn't mention Origins you know I go back and forth on Origins I I went once in 2000 and then Hasbro wasn't sending anyone when I worked at Hasbro and I left Hasbro and, you know, I was in startup mode. I, my, I had so many hotels and so many airplane tickets to buy, and it was either Gen Con or Origins. And I always, you know, thought it had to be Gen Con. But I have to say the number of people who have asked about Origins in the past year and a half has gone up markedly. And I did look at it last week at kind of going at the last minute this year. But uh, I'm uh, a divorced dad. I have my kids every other weekend, and that's a weekend I have them. So I only would have been there like Wednesday, Thursday, and it would have been a lot of money for a short time. But it is creeping onto my radar for future years. Just the fact that I miss BGG Con this year, so get, I'm going to miss Rob. And we hope that you'll be able to make it back on the show, especially yeah, for oh, yeah. other games that will be coming out, and especially in season two, which we won't mention anymore. We won't you anymore. Yeah, no, it's great. We talked about cooking. We talked about baseball. We just didn't get around to like uh, wine and martinis, and then you would know everything about me. To be honest, uh, we didn't get to all the questions we had in our guild, and we apologize to those questions we didn't get to. One of the person's question was, what's your favorite game about wine, and what wine would you have with it? So why don't you finish out with that answer? <laughs> I don't have a... My, I don't have a favorite game about wine. I like playing games with wine, such as blind tastings and going to tastings and trying to learn more about it. It's interesting. I have analyzed comedy. I've analyzed baseball. I've analyzed games. I've analyzed fiction and comic books and tore them apart. Wine is one of the things that I allowed myself to be vaguely stupid about. And by that, I mean people are like, what's your favorite varietal? Or do you prefer this manufacturer over this one? And like, I can't even use the right word. It's been so long. 
And I'm like, you know what? I, I like a certain quality and I'm, I know a little bit about what I like in wine, but I'm happy to just have people who know more pour me something good. There you go. So we covered all the bases and we got them all in tonight. Wine, baseball, food, and games. That's it. Now it's time for bed. Rob, thanks so much for coming on. Again, keep uh, track him, follow him on uh, Twitter. I'm sure through all the games he'll be coming out with, through the companies he's released them through. Uh, follow those ga- uh, companies, Platac Games, Artania, etc. And uh, Yellow with the party game that sounds exciting next year. And if you want to uh, meet Rob, shake his hand. Looks like the next time you'll be able to do that is at Gen Con. Rob, thank you so much for coming on again, buddy. Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Fifty First State from Portal Games has been shipped to all the people who pre-ordered it. That's right. If you want to get your copy of Portal Games early, make sure to go check out their pre-order system. Right now, they have Crazy Carts on pre-order and many more games coming down the pike later on this summer, such as Cry Havoc and First Martians. Go check it out at portalgames.pl. Once again, a great time with Rob was had by all. Or at least by you and I, maybe not him. We'll we'll see how that goes. Oh, hold on a second. I'm too busy trying to pre-order Seafall right now. Oh, okay. Well, good. That means I don't have to worry about it. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Get those metal, metal coins. Seriously, you can put them in with your Puerto Rico set. I bet we could probably get a group of two or three people here to play with us over the course. For us, it'll probably be the course of a year, I would think. Probably once per month. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way the schedule works out. But it's well worth it. And the way I remember rules nowadays, it'll be like playing the prologue again and again. (laughs) Hey, but we did hear that Rodney Smith will be doing a video for Seafall. So at least we can fall back on his video, assuming he gets the rules right. But he always gets the rules right, as we found out at Simon. So anyway, it's late. Are, are you ready to go to bed, man? Yes, I am. Because that was, I'm, I'm exhausted. It's, I love uh, talking with Rob. He's fantastic designer. He's got some great games coming out. And now that this one's put away, he's going to be working on other stuff that I'm sure we'll be excited about. Even that party game sounds really cool. Oh, that's that's pretty exciting. You can only listen to the person to your right. That's that's pretty cool. I yeah. like that. It's almost kind of like the uh, Tada game that we played um, at CMON Expo, where there's a little idiosyncrasies are going to be going on between the different people. And I was thinking the same thing while he was talking about that. I was like, man, this sounds a lot like Tada. So anyway. Thanks for listening. I hope you didn't mind a bonus episode here from Rolling Dice and Taking Names. But either way, keep rolling dice and taking names. We're well on our way to 100 pledges over at podpledge.com. Go check it out if you'd like to contribute to the show. Anything as small as a dollar. And remember, if we hit $1,500, we'll do a special Pandemic Legacy spoiler episode. Come back for our next episode where we'll review 51st State and Crazy Carts from Portal Games. Thanks for listening. Hey, Marty. Yeah? Can you guess what this sound is? Yeah, that's the sound of my pre-order. Con season is just around the corner, which means many games are going to be released over the next several months. And if you want the best deals on games, go pre-order your games from funagain.com. They have special discounts if you pre-order before it's released. Again, go check it out at funagain.com. Thank you for checking out a United Geeks Network family member. 
If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find the Game Crafter Official Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to the tabletop game print-on-demand company, The Game Crafter, and its growing community. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.